There was a day that the coleslaw was a little bit heavy on the red cabbage, so it kind of turned out pink, you know, and the students <laughs> kind of flip, you know, it's like, whoa, 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 <laughs> this coleslaw looks different. Our food service staff that day engaged with the student, told her why, you know, well, the farmers had a lot of red cabbage this week, and that's what we had, so this is what it looks like, and... But I think you should try it. Tastes the same, yeah. you know? And she came back with, like, an empty tray and a big thumbs up. And now yeah. that student knows, like, it might look purple this week or it might be green. We yeah. don't know. Welcome to the 322nd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, community food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Serving locally produced food in school cafeterias, known as farm-to-school, is one of those concepts that, like puppies and pizza, just about everyone thinks is a good idea. After all, it provides healthier food for young minds and bodies while putting more money in the pockets of farmers. What's not to like? But there are numerous obstacles that stand in the way of connecting local farms and local schools on a consistent basis. For one thing, many of today's schools lack the kitchen facilities and staff to prepare food that's straight off the farm. In addition, tight budgets make it difficult to pay local farmers what they deserve. Major food service companies simply provide a cheaper, if less nutritious, product. And it can be difficult for a local farmer to know how best to approach a school nutrition director and to know exactly how to match supply and demand and make regular deliveries. Finally, there's the fact that in the Midwest anyway, the prime growing season for items like fruits and vegetables and the regular school year don't exactly coincide. But in recent years, numerous school districts have overcome such obstacles to connect directly with farmers and make locally produced food more than a rarity on cafeteria tables. For example, more than 65% of U.S. school food authorities participating in the USDA's latest farm-to-school census, which took place during the 2018-2019 school year, reported that they were involved in farm-to-school activities. That represents over 42 million students. The number of Minnesota school districts engaged in farm-to-school practices rose from 18 in 2006 to 262 in 2019, which impacts over 520,000 students. In Minnesota, one thing that's helped smooth the path between the vegetable plot and the lunch table, has been increased support for farm-to-school initiatives via the State Department of Agriculture. For example, state farm-to-school and early care grants support school districts and early childhood education centers that want to buy and serve Minnesota agricultural products. In fiscal year 2024, the Ag Department expects to award up to $935,000 to reimburse school districts and early childhood education centers for buying Minnesota-grown and raised foods. School districts can also get state funding to purchase kitchen equipment that supports their handling and processing of locally sourced food. It should also be pointed out that farmers wishing to better match their growing season with the school calendar can apply for USDA Environmental Quality Incentives Program funds to erect hoop houses and other season-extending structures. A big reason such support is available is because groups like the Land Stewardship Project and the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy have been working hard during recent state legislative sessions to promote farm-to-school bills. For example, during the 2023 legislative session, we want a significant increase in funding for the state's farm-to-school initiative, and the Ag Department now is a staffer dedicated to this kind of work. 
Having a paid professional available to coordinate farm-to-school initiatives is important, and not just on the state level. For example, Amy Haig is the farm-to-school coordinator for the cooperative district that encompasses the central Minnesota communities of Hutchinson, Litchfield, and Dassel-Cocato. For the past few years, Amy has served as a link in the food chain connecting the schools and farmers in the region. That represents 12 kitchens and between 4,800 and 5,200 meals served in a given day. She regularly works with around 15 farmers, sourcing mostly produce, but also some meat and dairy products. The schools have also started bringing in local maple syrup, honey, and dry beans. Haig estimates that on average, the food they buy directly from farms is within a 15 to 30 minute drive of the schools. At the peak of the farm to school season, which is usually in early fall, 80% of the school's vegetables and 100% of the beef is locally sourced. Amy estimates over the entire course of the school year, between 25% to 35% of the food is from local farms. The Hutchinson, Litchfield, and Dassel Cocado initiative has been called the gold standard of farm to school programs in the state. In no small part, because they've dedicated staff time to its coordination. And Amy is a good fit for the job. She had worked in the classroom before, but even more importantly, she and her partner, Andy Temple, for a time raised vegetables in the area. That means Amy knows a lot about the challenges farmers face and also has lots of connections with the people raising food in the area. This summer, during a farm-to-school workshop and field day for farmers at Loon Organics in Hutchinson, farmer Laura Ferricks-Kollop made it clear that having the local school as a wholesale market has been a financial boon for her family's vegetable operation. As part of the workshop, Amy Haig then led participants on a tour of a school in Hutchinson where she explained the expectations and logistics involved with delivering food direct from a farm to an institutional kitchen. Several weeks after the workshop, Amy sat down to talk to me about what's involved with developing and maintaining a successful farm-to-school program. She began our conversation by making it clear that a school can't just decide it's going to buy local one day and then expect a delivery the next. A good farm-to-school arrangement requires long-term planning on both sides of the coin. Planning ahead, I there's so many ways to have a farm-to-school program and so many scales of that. And I think for some communities, especially ones that are even smaller communities or more rural than the hutchinson litchfield Dascocato area, it works. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you find an apple grower in the heat of apple season and say, we want to take in all of your small apples or your seconds or whatever. But I, something that's important to me, um, and I think this is like my my farmer at heart screaming through is like direct purchases. Mm-hmm. Our preference is to buy straight from the farm um, so that the farmer gets that the most benefit. There's mm-hmm. There are things where, you know, we're going to bring in some carrots this winter um, from another grower and we are going to get those from a distributor because they're a little too far away. And um, But when possible, I want to buy direct from that farmer to, to build that relationship, to, mm-hmm. to know their story a little bit better so we can share that with the students um, eating their food. So if you want to do it that way, it does take a little bit of planning. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that the vegetable farmers especially are making their decisions on seeds and quantity in December. Yeah. Um, and so it's almost like you go through this massive abundance of October, you kind of take a breath in November and then you get right back to, to planning. Um, there are things that have, you know, good storage life, like potatoes and carrots and squash that we, we can serve all winter. So it's not to say that everything is over now after frost, but 
And things like our proteins, our beef, and now some chicken, that will carry us through the winter too. But yeah, yeah those conversations where they're, you know, it's a, it's a growing season, not, right, right. not, an, not an, a year of raising animals. It's that growing season. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a lot of planning. And pardon the pun, but it sounds like you, especially that first year or so, you kind of went for the low-hanging fruit. Like what's available? Because you want to have success, a little bit of success right out of the shoot. Yeah. With a school that's like, well, is this a good use of our funds and that kind of thing? Yeah. That kind of way. Absolutely. Yeah. Easy things. So there are things that we, you know, think that the students love, like Mm -hmm. carrots, cucumbers, broccoli, cherry tomatoes. Bring those in first. Yeah. They also need minimal prep. So it gives our kitchen staff like a little bit of experience to uh, see how orders might come in. One of the questions was from the staff was, well, how, how are we going to like wash all this stuff? And there's such a misconception that like local stuff isn't going to be washed. Um, we're buying from professionals. Right. Um, they are packaging it and washing it really, really, really great, just according to industry standards. Right. So once our kitchen team saw... Oh, comes in a wax box, fits on our shelf. All the beets are clean, all the potatoes are clean, all the carrots are pressure washed. This is awesome. Um, so that was like that big whew, sigh of relief. So we, yeah, the first year we went for those those easy things, kind of those things that could be used fresh. You know, I had always heard that one of the reasons why schools couldn't serve um, local food or have a robust farm to school program was the lack of cooking infrastructure. In our three districts, I would say, had a pretty great infrastructure still in place to cook. We don't have, um, you know, we're not ordering, we don't have a meal service that was ever providing food for our schools. Mm -hmm. Um, So our schools all had mostly intact kitchens. We have, right off the bat, um, Leslie, the director, had applied for a small grant um, to get all the districts, um, and now all the kitchens have them, food processors, you know, that that can chop all the cucumbers really quick and, mm-hmm. you know, dice the tomatoes or dice the carrots, dice the onions. Um, we do fajita strips, you know, with peppers and onions. Um, so those pieces of equipment help, of course, when you're prepping vegetables for thousands of kids. And that was our first equipment purchase that we got um, grant money for. And then it has just gone up. We've purchased ovens with better technology and more cooler and freezer infrastructure Mm -hmm. because that seems to be lacking when you can get just exactly what you need every week from the truck you don't have a whole lot of capacity to freeze things while they're in peak or or store like carrots and sweet potatoes and onions that kind of thing so yeah we all of our kitchens have kind of gotten their their once over with new ovens and Mm -hmm. coolers and freezers and better equipment well they they talked about when i was there visiting the hutchinson school the meatball was a meatballer yeah that that was a key i mean just something <laughs> as small as simple as that you said that just made it possible to use locally produced beef yeah right? yeah we um it was kind of the last thing that we were purchasing using our commodity dollars was meatballs and if it hadn't been for the meatballs 100 percent of our beef would would be local. Mm-hmm. Um, so now that we have that meatball maker, it's a pretty fascinating machine. Um, we can have meatballs for pasta. We can have meatballs for meatball subs. We can do like an Italian wedding type of soup. So it's just, yeah, it's that one more piece. If we needed to make burger patties, we could. But uh-huh. yeah, it's a good piece of kitchen infrastructure. Um, and we share that. 
Yeah. You know, not every kitchen has everything. Right. Um, but yeah, the meatball maker was a, a fun ad this year. And it's it's part of the story. Yeah. You know, when students are like, what? These are local meatballs even? <laughs> you know, or what? 100% of our beef is locally raised. You're not going to win over every kid mm-hmm. with broccoli or Brussels sprouts, even cherry tomatoes, things that I think would be a student favorite. Right. You're always going to bat like 50%. Yeah. You know, there's going to be 50% that love it, 50% that are just a little cold on it. But when we have local burgers or meatballs, brats even, students, it smells different. Yeah. It's, a, it's a far better product than they were getting before. Yeah. And they, the protein seems, I guess what I'm saying, is the proteins seem like an easier um, reach mm-hmm. for the students. It's a, it's a familiar food. And... Yeah, it's a it's kind of a staple of at-home foods, so they're familiar yeah. with it. Um, and if they're familiar with the foods, we see them, like, reach for those first. Yeah, the, the, proteins, the proteins are a good, a good comfort thing for students. Yeah. So this fits in a little bit to something I'm really interested in, is how you do match two, what can be two ships passing in the night, which is the growing season in Minnesota and the school season, the school year. How have you handled that? That must be a, a pretty big challenge to kind of get those to overlap as much as possible. We did chat about how that first year, you know, we were just like, whatever's easy, you know, mm-hmm. whatever we can use. And that was a good learning year to see for all of our growers, you know, when <laughs> when they're like, well, we don't need, we would take some cherry tomatoes in July and August because we do feed students um, throughout the summertime. But what we really need is like tenfold those cherry tomatoes in September. Yeah. Um, so even some of our produce farmers have been able to plant like a later succession for us, which we're, we're talking, I'm talking with those growers two or three times a week, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll even send them. I have it like a task logged on my calendar of like, ask Laura and Joan if they'd squeeze in another succession of brassicas for us in the fall. <laughs> Just remind them if they have the energy in the space, um, you know, Go wild with the broccoli. If the farmers have space and energy, um, you know, they'll throw in that late succession of cherry tomatoes in a high tunnel or of sweet peppers. Mm -hmm. So planning our our menus kind of around, we know, like, September is just going to be wild. We're going to take in lots of variety. We'll take in what they have. Covered production space, like high tunnels and greenhouses, is going to be really helpful, of course, for those farmers. Yeah, I would say getting getting food at scale for only that September and October season is really difficult. Ultimately, all we can do, my idea is I communicate with the farmers ballpark estimates of amounts that we could use. The nice thing is, is let's say one farmer can produce 40 pounds of cherry tomatoes a week. We, can, we have 12 kitchens in the three districts, so we can take all of those mm-hmm. for sure. And we just might hit... Hutch one week, Dascocato the next week, Litchfield the next, and just keep cycling. We do that with cucumbers, late season zucchini, things like carrots that we don't have to use immediately. Like we just take those as they're available. Mm-hmm. And you, you, I know Laura at Loon Organics. Yeah, Laura Collip. Laura Collip at Loon Organics talked a lot about how much she appreciates that you can use her seconds because she's. She's seen it from the CSA side of it and direct-to-consumer to side of it and the wholesale side of it, and she says it's just really awesome to have 
a market for those seconds, those one, those tomatoes or whatever that are maybe a little blemished, but they're still delicious. They just can be used in different ways. That sounds like it's a huge. That's a really great way to give these farmers an op- a marketing option. Yeah, I think being able to take in some some seconds, something with slight blemishes, is a win for the farmers, of course, but it's a win for us too. Mm-hmm. We are managing tight budgets, you know. So if we can get food at half price, but it's still three fourths usable, it's a great it's a great solution for us. And gives that those farmers a little security that mm-hmm. their space and their energy is it's worth it. I mean, food waste is of course another conversation, but yeah. it's great for us to be able um, to to work those in. So there's things there are weeks like back to school week. Mm-hmm. We're not gonna like peel all of the carrots or we're not going to peel all of the cucumbers i know it's a wild week so we're just like not gonna hang on to seconds that week but a couple weeks later if she wants to you know bring an order of seconds bell peppers and we'll have the time to carve those out of course we need to know that they're seconds and our staff needs to know that they're seconds in their coolers so they can use that case first Mm -hmm. um or cut it into fajita strips to freeze for our burrito bar in January. It's all, our our staff is, they're really all pretty good sports mm-hmm. about that. And they know because I've communicated with the farmers, like make sure it's obvious that these are seconds. So when they're scanning their coolers, they'll use those first. And then letting know, letting the staff know. If you see a thing of seconds, whatever it is, use those first. Or they know these are for preserving, for processing, for pickling. Um, for saucing, for freezing, whatever you have. Do you have an estimate of, at your peak, what percentage of that food is is local? In September, I would say 80% wow. of the fresh vegetables are local. Um, like I said, 100% of our beef is local. Mm-hmm. And I'd say overall of our food budget, we're, we're about at 25 to 35%. Um maybe 40% in a couple places. Over the whole um, school over year. Over the whole school year. Yeah. yeah, that's locally sourced and raised foods. Yeah. That was, our, our goal was kind of, you know, to hit that 30% mark. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think we're flirting with that. Wow. And it, and obviously, it go, as you go deeper into the winter, it, that percentage drops. But, but uh, yes. yeah, to hit yep. 80% in September really gets off to, a, things to, off to a good start. Yeah. And the food, what we are required to serve um, students kind of gets in the way Mm. of reaching that 100% mark. We can't serve students broccoli every day per those requirements, Um, even though surprisingly, I think students (laughs) would eat broccoli every day. It's one of those things um, that seems to be well-loved. So um, it's if the, it's done right. It's the, is it the USDA nutrition guidelines? Is that what it is? That yeah. gets in the way of that? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. They exist for a good reason, yeah. you know, to make sure that students are getting a balanced and, and varied diet. Mm-hmm. But broccoli is like a dark leafy category. Yeah. And we also need to have like the red and orange category oh, represented. Okay. <laughs> and then everything else kind of falls into the other category. Right. So it's the things that grow really well. You know, like zucchini, cucumbers, green beans, they're all in the same category. Yeah. So yeah. just some some quirks about yeah. what what we're how we can feed and what we're required to feed. Right. Yeah. So how many farms are you dealing with now? How many uh, and what what are the mostly produce, but it sounds like some sources of protein as well, some 
meat, yeah. meat producing operations as well? Yeah, we over the course of the year, we are purchasing from about 15 um, Minnesota suppliers directly. So with about five, six, seven of those being produce, mm-hmm. we have three protein. And then we're also bringing in maple syrup and oh. honey oh, and yeah. dry beans. We just got some oats and flowers that we're workshopping from a farm in northern Minnesota. Mm. Um, so we're working our way to like all parts of the tray. And then mm-hmm. we also, all 12 kitchens um, and cafeterias have a bulk milk machine. So they're all getting milk um, directly from Stony Creek Farm in Melrose. Mm. So yeah, that was the question. It sounds like, it, I assume it's a certain circumference of this region here where we're at uh, in west central minnesota or this area here things like milk or things like dry beans things that we don't have to um i I guess they're consistent you know we we can source from outside of this radius but if you're dealing with fresh produce you know it's kind of got to come in every week and i'd say the produce growers are within 15 to 30 minutes of a school our three districts kind of span that 30 mile 25 mile range from the corner of hutchinson all the way to cocado elementary but yeah from any from like the center point i'd say 30 miles are all those produce farmers okay yeah yeah we also have an amazing amount of apple orchards around here yeah um so we're pulling apples in um pretty much from the first week of school into december even um so we've got three or four orchards that we pull from two. Do you do you visit every one of these farms, or do you? What's the nature of the relationship you have, I guess, uh, with them? I mean, you're obviously emailing and calling and whatever, but are you? Yeah, what's that? My connection to the farms and the system of delivering produce has changed, of course, over the course of the three years. Um, when we started, I picked up every box of produce and delivered it to the oh, schools. Wow. I can't do that anymore, <laughs> um, which is a good thing. We've, we've yeah. grown past that. Um, so farmers deliver their own produce now, but I do try to make it out to the farms. There's a couple that I did not stop at this season. It's an important piece mm-hmm. of knowing what their farms look like. I mean, both in, like, because I love farms and I want to grow that relationship with the people that we purchase from and in reverse, they want to know, you know, where they're selling stuff to. But we have a strong interest in food safety, yeah. too. So when we're feeding as many students as we are, it's important to kind of make sure um, all of your all of your boxes are checked, you know, and right. things are coming in right. Yeah. And and when we haven't had any issues, you know, but if that were the case, it's nice to be able to say, well, I've I've seen their pack shed or I've mm-hmm. seen their delivery vehicle. Like it, everything looks great. So what's going on here? We can dig into it. So I think the farm visits are are great. I hit the ones, you know, kind of closer to where I work most often. Um, If I'm, you know, flying past their farm and they've got two more boxes of cauliflower uh, available today, I'm going to pick them up. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just like my way of checking in and saying thanks and making sure then that I touch base in the kitchens. Well, you kind of have to be the person who vouches for to the staff and to the schools and to the nutritionists and that that these that these farms are doing what they should be doing and that kind of thing we do have like procurement standards you know so we're making sure that the farmers either have a food safety plan or food safety awareness of how things flow through their farms some of these farms are like really small um and i know there's just one person 
harvesting, washing, and bagging. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I know that person well because I've had a relationship with him as a grower um, in this community. So so that it feels good. Then being able to share that with our staff is is really invaluable. We have also brought our staff to a few of these farms. Mm. Um, so it's it's good for them to get out and see. And it actually, like, this is amazing. This is a real operation. Right. They're, they're growing a ton of food. Um, in Minnesota. In Minnesota, <laughs> yes. I know. We, there were... I think it was 2021. It was the spring of 2022, actually. We were able to get some overwintered spinach mm-hmm. in April from a farm. Wow. And so that year, our local farm school features of fresh food went from April, you know, all the way until October or November. Right. Um, that was great. Yeah. You can do it here. And especially for those farms that maybe have an interest in, you know, covered space or kind of playing with those shoulder seasons, um, schools are a great spot for them to, to think about selling to. A lot of schools want that April and May mm-hmm. and that September, October, November. Yeah. What struck me when I toured the um, kitchen there at the Hutchinson School was it seemed to be a real combination of pretty, uh, how do I say this, formalized standards. You had everything from the boxes had stickers on them showing down to which plot and which hoop house they came from. So you could, if there was ever any problem, you could trace it back. Mm-hmm. So, very, so very specific kind of, uh, yeah, formalized system of, of sourcing that food, but also a combination of relationship, informal relationships. Um, it, it seems like that, ba- there seems to be a balance there. There is a good balance there. Yeah, we, we have to take things really seriously. And because we're working in the public world and mm-hmm. using public dollars. Like, everything has to be very controlled. Everything has to be very well documented. And at the heart of this, this is about building relationships with your community members, sharing food with your community. And um, so it is. It's a good balance of both of those things. Each farmer is a little different. Um, their labels are going to look a little different. All I need to know is that they know where this food came from, mm-hmm. and we have that somewhere in our possession, whether it's produce or meat. Uh-huh. Best practice is going to be that yeah. we can, if anything were to happen on our end or on the farms, that we can we can trace it back. We mm-hmm. know which day that was served, which grades got it, maybe, you know, which students would be at risk of anything. That's never happened. But it's just, yeah, it's good practice. We have to kind of be really serious right. about that documentation piece and what we bring in. And, yeah, that helps our kitchen staff also just know they're being responsible and respectful and... Yeah, because that I've seen this before with some initiatives like this. In that, there's some people who in the school, maybe some some administrative officials at the school district who get really excited about this. But it's the staff who have to do serve that food and prepare it day in and day out, and so they have to have a good attitude about it and a buy-in, or it's yeah, it's not going to wash. They have a hard job. The schools are a really great place to be. They can also be a really challenging place to be. <laughs> um, they can be loud, you know, yeah. and they're under the pressure of tight schedules to get everything in in a day. And um, they are really like heroes day in and day out. And when they're at their best, I'm, I never expect everybody to like be super jazzed about serving cabbage again, you yeah. know? 
but yeah. but you can see the difference when the staff does engage with the students and shares a story or yeah. um there was a day that the coleslaw was a little bit heavy on the red cabbage so it kind of turned out pink you know and the students <laughs> kind of flip you know it's like whoa 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 <laughs> this coleslaw looks different yeah and yeah and it's pink of all things um and it was just our food service staff that day engaged with the student told her why you know well the farmers had a lot of red cabbage this week and that's what we had so this is what it looks like and but I think you should try it tastes the same yeah. you know and she came back with like an empty tray and a big thumbs up oh. um and it was because our employee was able to take the time and had the energy and knew why also that they had so much red cabbage yeah it might come in looking different each week. And and that staff person had the, the energy to engage with that student yeah. and share that story. And now yeah. that student knows, like, it might look purple this week or it might be green. We yeah. don't know. So I don't know if this is something you have been able to look at or if anybody else has. Has there been any, and you're really still in the early stages of all this, but has there been any um, attempt to kind of quantify financially what kind of boost this is for the the local food farm economy as far as you know you you're providing a market for more than a dozen farms and yeah i don't know is there is there been any do you know has there been anything any any research on that kind of what what is a boost for the local ag economy for something like this i don't know if anybody's tracking that what i do know is that i hear directly from the farmers mm-hmm. um Especially the ones, you know, like the half a dozen or so that we use, like, weekly on Mm -hmm. a very regular basis, that this program has made all the difference Mm -hmm. in their bottom lines, you know, or they used to have a really diverse wholesale makeup of their of their produce sales and now the school is the biggest or the only it's all about just having that working relationship you know and that trust and that open line of communication where it's wild that the school can be such a key purchasing partner for those seasonal farms when we aren't even in school for a bulk of that growing season Mm -hmm. um and for us to be the largest buyer i think is it's awesome and it shows what you can do when you can work together you know with your community i don't know what the figure is but i think you know they say every dollar that you spend locally you know turns into whatever it is um, two or three or four um whether it's two times or four times or eight times or only one and a half it just feels good yeah it feels right and what we learned when the supply chain was disrupted is that we would order things from our truck and something different would come you know they just substitute you something different and it was the farmers here locally when we ordered broccoli we got broccoli when we ordered ground beef we got ground beef (laughs) and having that direct communication and that really local system of food production is what was more resilient Mm -hmm. and was what was more trustworthy Mm -hmm. and it felt especially good in that moment to really put all of our energy there so i credit um (laughs) the pandemic for pushing us in that direction faster um because we had to to get what we needed to serve the students and then we just didn't go back so of course we still order a lot of staples um and frozen foods from the truck you know and we lean on that heavily Mm -hmm. in the winter months but yeah we it just feels right Maybe that is because I'm a farmer in my heart, but also I think it just 
the parents like it, the students like it, the teachers love it, the cafeteria smell good. <laughs> it is extra work, but it still feels like the right kind of work. This year I'm excited to get into all the kindergarten classrooms in all of the three districts. Um, and we're gonna just kind of share what we're excited about that's going on in the cafeteria and then put out the monthly menu and then say, let's choose three things, mm -hmm. you know, that you as a class, you know, want to learn more about or try. And if all of, if 20 of the 25 of you in this classroom um, taste it, we'll say like, we met that goal. We also participate in the Harvest of the Month program. So getting um, some like fun facts and marketing about what we're featuring that month maybe. Um, that's a Minnesota item. We pass out stickers in the cafeteria to get kids to try them. So letting them collect eight stickers, you know, and letting them know, like, this is the beef day. Yeah. Like, you can get your beef. I tried Minnesota beef sticker today. So I'll be doing that work with the kindergarten classes to just kind of, like, from the foundation, let them know what's going on in farm to school mm -hmm. and hoping that we can kind of cultivate this, yeah. this season of their lives where they feel confident to reach for those foods on the line and to know that the students are maybe not aware like it's really easy to just like be a student flow through the hallways right. and maybe not hear or not read the monitor or you're just maybe not into food and you don't know that it tastes different right it's if we're not telling that story you know and we're not reaching the students in their classrooms we're missing an opportunity yeah. and I agree it's the cafeteria is is kind of loud. It's kind of fun. It's their social hour, as it should be. Yeah. Um, and so it's hard to tell that story in the lunchroom sometimes. I am I'm looking forward to, and I think it is the biggest challenge of this program, and we're just kind of getting to that point where we're able to, to get into that classroom and, and tell the story of community connection through food and, and just celebrate it. I know you've been very active in, with the Lance Sturgeon Project and some of our allies in going to the legislature and talking about and talking to lawmakers about farm to school and uh, testifying and helping push for some funding to be passed and some support for this thing. And so we've seen just in the past couple of legislative sessions a lot of, seems like a lot of uh, progress in that area. How key is that? that support and that funding from the uh, on the from the state level for schools to even think of this or for and for farmers to think about uh, getting involved in something like this I can only speak for you know the districts that I work for that this funding has been important um, it's been like the legs that we stand on mm -hmm. to to reach out and try new things we rely on that grant funding um, to cover a percentage of our purchases. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're talking about protein specifically, there's a big price gap. In a perfect world, we'd just be able to afford good food for the kids yeah. and for ourselves at yeah. home, you know? Um, you mean a price gap between if you just buy it off the Cisco truck and yeah. getting it locally? That's yeah. a huge price gap. Yep. Yeah. There are all sorts of... They call them entitlement dollars uh, for school nutrition programs. Some things they get for free. Mm -hmm. um, you just need to like survey and say like we need X amount. So that's what we're up against. And what we lose, we lose some of our entitlement dollars by choosing to 
purchase locally. So we need to be really smart about how we use our money. Or mm. if we're not going to use it for beef, then maybe we got to find some cheese that we can bring in right. um, through the commodity system um, or some beans. Yeah, we rely on that public support, that public funding. I think what's important is for the state to show kind of like a permanent level of commitment mm-hmm. um, and kind of define their their commitment to farm to school funding more than one or two years at a time. I think the farmers could really get on board with selling into institutions like farm to school and early care if they knew that this funding is going to be available for schools. It does the farmers no good if we have a just a banner year of supporting them and then two years later the funding is cut it's really disruptive for small farms and i have heard from a few of the growers like well we would buy a carrot harvester and washer if we knew this was part of our 10-year plan you can tell us it's a part of your one or two-year plan but you know we don't really know and i empathize it's it's a hard decision yeah these are long long long-term systems you know that we want to work on and being three years into it and looking at where we started and where we are it's great but it still feels a little unsteady yeah and the beautiful thing about farm to school is kind of no matter at which scale a district wants to do it or is able to do it grant or no grant there's an important story to tell there i think that will continue but if we want to make a larger impact on agriculture and what the land is set up to look like it's a good avenue for for us to just like put our public energy and our public dollars into we not only lift up the farmers and make sure they have a viable local avenue to sell but we get the kids some awesome nutrition right it's just it's a no-brainer to me what advice would you give to a school district and maybe to a farmer who is interested in getting something like this going in their community? Um, What would be some of the first steps? I think for a school district that has interest is is to set it as a priority to have somebody like me working for... Uh, their food service department um, to make those connections. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things at play that a food director or another kitchen staff doesn't have um, maybe the time and flexibility for. And it doesn't have to be every district in in this for their for their own. Mm-hmm. Our districts are a perfect example, and I think that's why we've had success is because they can share um, the burden, for lack of a better word, of my position. We have, like... The same farmers can access all of our districts, and that's no different than, say, Western Minnesota. Um, Are there four or five small districts that could share a very part-time person to just Mm -hmm. get this off the ground? I think so. Just west of the metro, you know, are there three or four towns that could share somebody like me? Absolutely. And the deal is there's no farm-to-school program that's going to look the same as ours um, because they aren't going to have the same growers. But they can, with that person's help and dedicated time i think you that's you can start to build a program that reflects your community and that's genuine to who you are and what your strengths are if you're a farmer i think back to when i was starting when andy and i were starting rebel soil and it was intimidating to like cold call restaurants you know and i would search the restaurant on 
on the internet to see if I could find a picture of the chef so I knew what they looked like. Um, see if they were friendly looking. Yeah. <laughs> School nutrition is such a different field. Everybody loves kids and everybody has like they want what's best Mm -hmm. and if their participation rates increase because they have a farmer you know selling high quality food that's willing to come into the cafeteria and be the hype person for butternut squash that's a win completely so it's an easier like cold call is all I want to say it's less intimidating um they have very different things to consider than a restaurant Mm -hmm. but also a lot of that is potential um those are opportunities if you're looking to get started and you want to get into farm to school as a grower um the child nutrition director is your is your contact person and the things to consider are what do you think students are going to love what foods are going to be easy to sell to students and what ingredients are low labor on the kitchen side and that's where you start if you also have something you're really good at or you have the you know, space and capacity on your farm to grow. If you do broccoli really well, or you do cabbage really well, or you do salad radishes really well, go for it. Start with one thing. If we're all just playing on our strengths, you know, I think any working relationship will thrive. more information on Farm to School initiatives, see the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode 322 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on whatever podcast platform you utilize. And word of mouth is the best way to spread the news about our podcast. If you like what you hear, tell at least one person about LSP's Ear to the Ground. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.